Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm pumped to have Carla Bernberg join me on episode 37 of the Creative Giant Show. Carla launched her popular blog, Misfit Online, in 2007, where she shared health and fitness knowledge with humor and ease. She quickly became known for jettisoning gym workouts in favor of playouts with her daughter. She has since expanded her site, CarlaBernberg.com, to cover everything from personal development to motherhood with the same accessible voice. Carla's health philosophy and life motto is, fitness isn't about fitting in. She believes we all share the goal of a longer, healthier, more vibrant life, yet it's okay, even encouraged, to carve a unique path there. Her site's tagline, unapologetically myself, has inspired thousands to pursue goals in their own way. Carla's engaging, keep it real advice has been featured in Runner's World, Women's Day, The Wall Street Journal, Fitness, Ladies Home Journal, Glamour, Women's Health, Fitness, Yahoo, Shape.com, and more. She's one of major fitness brands' favorite voices. Carla was named one of Athleta's five favorite fitness blogs, was chosen a Transform Your Workout Fitness Expert by Cafe Mom, Shape Magazine placed her in the top five fitness blogs, as well as one of 15 fitness gurus you need to follow on Twitter. She became Fila Brand's inaugural spokesmom and is a consultant to Venus Williams, who identify her as a social media influencer. In 2015, she and co-author Roni Noon published What You Can When You Can, Healthy Living on Your Terms. They have created a hashtag WYCWYC, pronounced WICWIC, movement on social media and through their podcast. Carla, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. I'm really excited. I think you set me up with that and I had forgotten it was in my bio. Humor and ease. So with that, that backdrop, I'm ready. Humor and ease. And, you know, keep the, keep the bar low here. So now you have to be super funny. And ease. And ease. I don't know. How are we going to do that one? Um, I'll leave that one up to you. That's your lane. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to the beginning, though. What led you to start Misfit Online back in 2007? It's so funny. I was blogging back in 2001. I was making money from the internet. Some guy, Roger Applewhite, reached out to me. Everyone thought him crazy. He had a weblog, I think we were calling it back then, and he wanted to pay me to write about my workouts. And, man, we all thought he was nuts. And I thought he was equally crazy to pay me to do it. But I thought, if anybody cares, I'll write about it. And I kind of did that for a while, which led to some other bigger opportunities with the Austin American Statesman. I had a traditional job. And then we decided that we were going to adopt our daughter from Guatemala. So I chucked everything and moved to Guatemala, moved back to the United States. I now had a little one around me all the time and I couldn't volunteer anymore in the same traditional kind of way I had done previously. So I thought, what do I know? And I had been a personal trainer in my one of my first careers. I had owned a boutique studio back in the early 90s. And I thought, I'm going to take all of this knowledge I have, and that will be my volunteer work at night. I will give it away. Because it was still pretty cost prohibitive then. Training was expensive. And I thought, well, this will be a neat way to volunteer. People that can't afford a trainer, I'll give them what I know. That's fantastic. 
Um, so back in 2007, things were different when it comes to blogging and, you know, all that type of stuff, right? Um, and I'm curious, what were a few of the spark moments earlier in your career as, as a fitness teacher and as a volunteer where you knew you were in the zone with Misfit Online? It was unbelievably different from the work I did by day. I was doing a lot of magazine writing, traditional media, a lot of newspaper, and there wasn't any feedback occasionally. And I remember celebrating these. People would write letters to the editor, like hard copy letters that they would print about something I wrote. But even that whole process would take maybe a month. And it was so immediate. I mean, I knew when I didn't do well and I missed the mark because people were eager to share that as well. But I really found out quickly And back then it was much more interactive in the comments, but I got feedback immediately. I tried this. It was great. And I, I thrived on that immediate response because I knew what to tweak, what to keep doing in a way I didn't with traditional media that took, it just took longer. Cool. Well, something about your voice is that it's very unapologetically yourself. It's very, to use a word, it's very brazen. It's very um, direct and it's also really simple. Um, in, in what you what you um, share that seems now that we you know after Twitter has trained us to you know be much more concise and much more you know provocative um, you know we may not see that as a huge thing now but back then like how did that voice sit in the marketplace as far as other fitness teachers and, and people talking about fitness I think it is twofold. I mean, I do not come at all. I was a trainer, but I don't come from an athletic background. And I used to laugh that I couldn't teach something that came naturally to me. I was a really good clarinetist. And I thought, oh, this is how I'll make some money. And I was terrible because I didn't understand when someone couldn't pick it up and sight read as easily as I could. And that was kind of one of my first few clues of, oh, I might be a really good personal trainer. I don't have a lot of athletic prowess. If it takes you forever to learn something, I already knew I needed to break it down into its most simplest part so you could understand it and grasp it because chances are it was really hard for me to understand at the beginning as well. And I think that was my gift that I'm not an athlete. It's taken me a long time to get to where I am physically. And it was really just come along with me. We'll figure this out together. Let's see what we got. And when we get stuck, We'll revamp it. And that was a gift of blogging. And the next post it was, okay, so this didn't work for you. Let's try a different approach. Oh, fantastic. You recently changed from Misfit Online to Carla Bernberg. What led you to make that change and how has it affected the way that you show up in the world? Oh my gosh, it's funny how terrifying it was. And with hindsight, of course, I think, really? It's such the right decision. But I remember back when I launched the blog, whatever it was, 2004, I think I was considering names. Everyone had a cutesy moniker. Everyone had a caricature. I mean, I think now back to women like Hungry Girl. Do you know Hungry Girl? Explain it to us. She still has. Her tagline was she talks a lot about dieting and different ways of eating healthy and going to fast food restaurants. And she started around the same time I did. Cute caricature. Hungry Girl. You didn't know her name. And her tagline was, I'm not a dietitian, I'm just a girl who's hungry. And that was kind of the path we all went down. So Ms. Fit felt very, okay, I'm not going to do this forever. I never dreamed it would become my career. I never thought, and in a way it was such a great effort at branding. People began to call me by that name. 
I wasn't forward thinking with much of this, <laughs> just kind of took on a life of its own. So it really was not that long into it, about 2008 or nine, I started thinking, misfit. I was doing the play on the words misfit. Like I'm not an athlete. I'm kind of a misfit bumbling around this. People didn't get it. Misfit, they thought, M-S period F-I-T. And I wanted to expand. I felt really boxed in, but it took me about three years to pull the trigger. It felt like such a big thing. Would people leave me? Would I ever find my tribe again? Could people relate to me if I changed so dramatically to them? I did a header change and a tagline change along the way to try to soften the blow. And with hindsight, I would tell, and I do tell because so many people ask me, rip off the bandaid. You got to be who you are. And when you're faking it, people know. My readers told me after, oh yeah, we could tell you were phoning it in for six, eight months. They know. So you didn't lose your people. You didn't have to refine a tribe. You didn't like, what was the fallout? There was very little fallout. I really worked hard on the transition, kind of letting people know what was coming. And then I had the post where I am Carla Bernberg and it talked about progressing from being misfit to wanting to use other facets of my skill set. I have a master's degree in counseling and I wanted to bring that to the table. I didn't lose people, but what I learned was, and I'm still sitting with this, I think it's been... I should know offhand, but let's say it's been, gosh, maybe only a year and a half. I'm in that awkward space of, I don't know who my new tribe is exactly. I have the old tribe still, and I'm writing more about parenthood and personal development, but I'm learning to sit in the awkwardness and just know that it will shake out and that it's an okay place to be. Why do you think it's a new tribe rather than just your old tribe with a new paint job on it? I have my old tribe. I feel like there are other people out there. I feel like there are other people out there where it's nothing to do with fitness because I think struggle is so universal. My current struggle has nothing to do with weight loss and hasn't for 20 years. But because struggle is so universal, I've attracted this hardcore tribe of women who are struggling to get fit, to stay fit, to lose weight. And so it's that. I think so many of us are out there struggling that there's so many other people I want to speak to because no matter what your struggle is, we all have the same experiences. Hmm. Hmm. Seems like, you know, one good thing is the reader that finds you, let's say tomorrow, won't have that rich history of misfit in that box and that thing like that going on. And so she can show up with this new conversation that you've started. Yes. And that's how my blog is. I mean, there's a whole group of more traditional bloggers where it's their day-to-day life. And I never did that. And for me, it's been a great choice not to do that. You can jump in midstream and never feel like I'm behind. Yeah. Um, the trick is, and, and other people have experienced this too, I'm considering in a different ways, is we as the as the writer, as the communicator, as the expressor, we have the baggage of the, of the old brand with us. And so we project that even though the other people don't have it. And so we have these very awkward conversations and we're like, I'm not that. And they're like, I never knew you were that in the first place. That's exactly it. And it's the, I've been thinking so much about this in other facets of my life, but the apologizing, it's the constant, oh, I'm sorry, but don't apologize. Exactly. Um, you know, you have this remarkable habit of making things look easy, Carla. Um, and so let, let's talk about the the publication process for your book. So before What You Can, When You Can was accepted, you pitched five other nonfiction proposals. 
So walk us through that process and how it all worked out in the end. It was a really fun, I think it was a really fun process because the what you can, when you can has kind of been the way I've lived my life, but I never had a name for it. And I remember when my husband was doing his dissertation, he said to me, I love the process. I don't know that you would want to do the dissertation because you'd be too focused on the outcome. And I didn't understand, but I really enjoyed the process, the challenge of, okay, we've come up with this idea. We go through and we work on this nonfiction proposal. And you know what? We realize it's not really there. It's not fully fresh out. This is not going to be the one that's going to hit. And without a huge attachment to the outcome, whatever that outcome might be, being famous, making a lot of money, whatever the outcome from getting a book published might be, it was really freeing because we knew, even if no traditional publishing house agreed with us, when we finally came up with this idea, we knew it was the one. We weren't shocked when other publishing houses, literary agents turned down the other five permutations because we weren't really sold. And if we weren't sold, we knew it wouldn't sell. But this one we believed in so much that I do think if it hadn't found a home in a publishing house, we might've done it on our own. So did you work with um, Roni throughout all of those or did she come in later in the stage or talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, I actually have a, I had done the fiction thing before. So I've been agented before. And so I knew the process and she and I are some of the original fitness bloggers. I think I met her right when I launched my blog. So I've known her for about seven years and we knew we wanted to partner on something together. And, oh, it was the smartest thing we ever did. I mean, people often say to us, oh, it must be nice to have a partner. It's half the work, but it really is much more the emotional having somebody just as invested in it as you are. We both worked equally as hard on the project because we were equally as excited. And each time we were equally as excited and we needed all of those And it's so trite because everyone who has any success says this, but each one of those failures, it's so true, brought us closer to getting that yes. Yeah. Well, having a co-author for your first nonfiction book is an interesting choice in that way, right? Um, Because one way to say it is like the process takes a lot longer generally because you have multiple parties involved, but the product is considerably better. And we bring such different things to the table. You exactly nailed it. I mean, I think that the book is short and the chapters are terse and it's all by design. And I think it took us 80 times as long to make it as short. And I wish I could remember the quote old that I love where it's, sorry, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it shorter. And I was reminded of that as we worked on this book over and over again, but whether you're married, whether you have a partner, I don't think anyone is as tightly invested in a project unless they're really in the trenches with you. Yeah. Um, I found out the experiential way. I won't say the hard way. I found out the experiential way as I was writing the small business life cycle that I think people underestimate how hard it is to write a simple, concise, straightforward book without adding a bunch of stuff to it and, and where that comes from. Um, and you've mentioned that, um, you know, it being terse and straightforward and having simple common sense advice is something that could have paralyzed you too, um, in the sense of what you were taking to the market. So um, how did you both keep it into or keep it from paralyzing you and really leaning into the, the fact that that's a that's a benefit of the book? 
I I had only written by myself before, the blog, newspaper articles. I have a couple of fiction manuscripts. So we thought, and I will never forget this, we thought it would be a really good idea to split up the chapters and then swap them. I don't know who told us this. I don't know if most people do it this way. Great. So we split them up and let's say they're 50 chapters. We each got 25. And when the press signed us, they said, you're kind of late for spring 15. The book came out in May, but you could get in if you can get it to us in a month or you can be spring 16. And we thought not only were we ready, but we weave in a lot of social media. We already had built momentum with the Wickwick hashtag on Twitter and Tumblr and Pinterest and Instagram. We thought, okay, we need to do this now. So we split up the chapters and I will never forget sitting down to that blank page and thinking, oh, I, I have nothing. <laughs> I was completely paralyzed and we were on such a tight schedule of I needed to send her four chapters in a week and then another four. And she called me up and she just said, I have nothing. I am completely paralyzed. And so we came up with this idea. And I look back now and think, how did we do that? But we blocked off. We each sent our families away and we blocked off. I think it was five 12-hour days is what we did initially. And we wrote the entire thing. We were on the cell phone using a Google Doc, all simultaneously, pretty much no breaks except for running to the restroom for 12 hours. And it was I seriously was the most fun thing I've ever done. And it was in that moment I realized it really is already successful. This, I have never enjoyed a process like this. The days went so quickly. I lost all track of time. I hadn't had that feeling since I was nine years old. I want to pause because we often don't think about the beauty of the technology and the tools that we have today to be able to collaborate real time with a co-author on a Google Doc or, you know, to be able to open up Skype and be working on something throughout that. It's just, you know, we have all these tools and we just don't, I think, sometimes realize what we can do with them, you know? And I think it's okay. I mean, I do come from the, when I was working strictly on fiction was, let's say, 98, 99, and people were using the internet far less. And so those people who are still on that same path really are much more against the technology. And I did have a fleeting moment of, oh, I don't know that I could write anything. I create best in a WordPress dashboard. And I think I had a moment of thinking, does that make me not good enough? Are they more writers? And I thought, no, this is just, this is how I flow now. And it is, it's merely different. One is not better than the other, but we never could have done this without the Google Doc. And I just keep thinking the writing was unbelievably fun. Yeah, that, um, hmm. Many of the authors that I've spoken to have mentioned, you know, um, that the writing was fun, but not in the same way. Because, I mean, it's largely was a solitary event for them. Yeah. Um, and so I think, especially for extroverts, um, going that route can be incredibly powerful. And I did, way back in the day, I did a project with, with Jonathan Mead, and we did it on Google Wave. So that kind of dates... <laughs> But it was it was before Google Docs was as mature as it is now, and we both sort of noticed that it was really fun. We came up with way better stuff. It was also really challenging because we were shifting our paradigms of how to create. But, you know, I would really, like, I think the reason I wanted to, sit, to hang out here, because for all the creators listening to it, I want them to realize that, like, if, if sitting down and staring at that blank screen yourself isn't working for you, 
It's not because you're defective. Find another way. Like, oh my gosh. And I still say to her and the book's out. I am so glad you called me that day because I define myself as a writer. She does not. She would say I'm more of a techie. So to her, she just picked up the phone and said, I'm paralyzed. What you got? But I think I might have sat in front of that screen forever. And it's the, you know, when you're writing, you open a vein. There's no need. The minute she said that all the words flowed, far too many. So we had so many drafts and revisions. But you're right. It doesn't make you a failure. It's we have the gift of so many different approaches now, and you might as well use them. Absolutely. You mentioned that the book was an experience in living what you had almost veered into giving lip service to. Um, not so much in the fitness, but in your world of work. Um, what do you mean by that? And, and tell us tell us more about that. The writing of the book was a pretty organic process. Once we got started and figured that out, but then comes the the book is almost the easy part. And I think it's said all the time and it, the platform building is a big piece, but that came kind of easy to both of us. And we've been doing it for seven, eight years, but you really need those blurbs. I almost got paralyzed by that. And there's no pressure. I mean, they didn't, the pressure was definitely from myself, but they say to you, what can you get? And then they sit with the silence. And I thought, oh, I need, and we wrote a whole chapter on it. You got to ask. There is nothing, no one's going to come to you. Although one person did and offered to blurb your book, but also I had veered into the mindset of, and I blame Dr. Phil. Do you remember Dr. Phil? I do remember Dr. Phil, yeah. He used to say, I don't know if he still does. I think he's still on. What's the worst that can happen? Which actually worked for me in a lot of different realms. But I started thinking down that path. I could ask this person, what's the worst that could happen? But I needed to reframe that, which is something we also talk about in the book. What's the best that could happen? She says, yes. I thought, you know, I'm really becoming negative accidentally. What I preach is the words we use create the house we live in. And I was thinking, what's the worst that can happen with the blurbs? And there were a lot of them. I'm embarrassed. I ask you to quote my book and you read it and it's terrible. You don't like it. But I thought, what's the best that can happen? They say yes. And I just thought I need to ask because they're not going to, they don't know I want them to blurb the book. So I had to practice what I always preach. Why was it so hard for you to ask? I mean, besides worrying about, about this, I have a theory, but I'm going to let you, let you share it. A lot of it is time. I think I was projecting on them and I'm always asked how much I charge for something. I'm getting everybody's quotes wrong. I would like to say it's Hemingway. But people always ask me, how much do you charge for a post? How much do you charge for this? And really the bottom line is what I charge is the amount of time I have to and life I have to give away or sacrifice for it. So I'm really aware that you can make more money. I never really worry about money. I'll get another job. I'll get another two jobs. But you can't make more time. And I think... I know I say no pretty freely and easily. That's one chapter I do rock. But I just thought I, we're all so busy and you really need to read the whole book to decide. It was somewhat that. I was really proud of the book. The cover quote I worried was a reach. We got Venus Williams to give a lovely quote for the cover. But I thought, I know I am Carla Bernberg and I am really careful who I partner with. Really careful. I don't have a lot of brand partnerships 
because I want them to be quality, both the people and the brand. And they, I don't want to have any risk. I want them to be around for a while. I don't want them to go rogue. So I knew it was a really big deal for her to be willing to put her name on the book. Yeah, I wonder, this is a complete aside, and I'm probably going to get a few emails about this, but that's okay. Um, what I've noticed is when it comes to the art of asking, um, which is, oh, I can't remember her name right now, Amanda Palmer, her new book, right? The Art of Asking. But when I've noticed this, I've noticed that um, women tend to, when, when it's time for asking for blurbs and asking for sale or asking for that, tend to be much have a much harder time than the men do, right, that, that I've talked to about that. They're like, oh, I, I just went up and asked. And um, I think it's a largely a socialization thing. There's nothing inherent about either, but I think it's just one of those things to where we teach one set of people, like you got to ask for things, and we teach others that you got to wait to be asked, which completely messes us up when we look at you know how we how we show up in the world because you know no one was going to ask you to write this book, Carla. Right, right, and that didn't seem okay. So they say no. A lot of people have said no, but you're right. There was something. It's both vulnerable making and the Venus thing. She had come to me to work with her because she recognized my expertise. And I thought, and I don't know if this is something that men feel more comfortable with or not. Now I'm mixing the pot. You brought me on for my social media savvy and that's separate. Will this make you feel awkward? Where I don't know that a man, he would think, no, if it makes her feel awkward, she'll decline. I don't know. I don't know. Interesting, just observations from from the work that we do out there in the world, you know? Um, so which of the chapters or, or sayings from the book um, are you the strongest at? I do say no, and perhaps that's why I was worried about asking. I rock the no. We talk about, I love Albert Ellis, background in psychology, and he talks about masturbation, losing the shoulds and the oughts. I'm great at that. I never say yes in the moment. It took me till maybe 30 to learn that, but it could be the greatest opportunity or something I would never do. And I always say, let me check. I need to think about that, which has changed my life and the living with margins. I have learned that one the hard way that I need a cushion. I need not to be going full throttle all the time because then one tiny thing comes up and it could be the fun thing and everything falls apart. Which ones do you struggle the most with? See, now I'm thinking it would be prideful to say none of them, but I really don't. I think that I really don't struggle and that's why it was time to write the book. I don't think I could have written the book 10 years ago because I was still learning it. 20 years ago, I was still learning it in every single realm of my life. And it really is with age comes wisdom and confidence and that's why we started it. We, I mean, yes, we would like for you to buy the book. But the movements out there on Twitter, search the hashtag, whether you want to spend $14 or not. We want to make it available to everyone. We believe in it so much. Small steps, big change, they all add up. It's really not that hard, yet so many of us struggle with it. Yeah. Let me rephrase the question. Which one required or which of them require the most intentional practice? They might not be struggling. They might not be hard, but they require some like, oh, I need to... It's, they're not nearly as native as say saying no. I the quitting and moving on. And I'm not one to beat my head against the wall, but I do have that brain where I think 
I'm going to let this go. And then I'm starting to fall asleep. And I think, oh no, this might make it work. So I think sometimes it's the remembering quitting this doesn't mean I can't come back. And quitting this doesn't mean that now I don't have space for something different, but I'm really tenacious. So I tend to, I need to remind myself of that more. So what's the most unanticipated challenge you're currently facing? Where to go with the movement. We knew we wanted, it's the same reason why I think blog posts are fine, but Seth Godin talks about the vertical connection and the horizontal connection, and there's not as much horizontal connecting person to person anymore on blogs in what we used to call the comment versation. And with the book, we knew from the beginning, this is just you and paper. So we launched the whole movement online and now we have a podcast that we've started and it's more the what's next. We want to keep this alive. I don't know that the next is another book, but it's where do we go with this? What's the next step? And I think so much of it is I never thought this book would happen five years ago. I didn't know what the concept would be. So it's sitting in that uncomfort, discomfort and letting it naturally grow and evolve. Is there a way you would like it to go? Really, we just want to help people. It sounds so touchy-feely, but some of the successes we've seen shared on Twitter and some of the things that people have done and shared and then how it's grown beyond us. We always wanted it to be a mirror to other people. There's nothing about us in this book. It doesn't talk about our stories. It's not our mini memoir. And watching people start to take it on as their own and encourage each other, that's what we love. So I'm going to back up a little bit because I should have asked this earlier. Did you start the Wickwick movement in anticipation for the book or how did that come about? No, I think it worked. (laughs) Ronnie actually started it as a personal challenge of what you can, when you can. And it's kind of an appropriation of a Theodore Roosevelt quote and then threw up the hashtag and then I emailed her. I called her and said, I love that thing you're doing, the Wickwick. And she said, oh, is that how you say it? And I said, oh, I don't know. That's how my eight-year-old and I say it. And it kind of grew from there. And it gave us such an opportunity to weave in social media to something more traditional and kind of meet people where they are, some of them just in the bookstore and not online, and some of them already online and looking for a handbook to kind of go along with what they're doing. You seem to be the queen of spotting like an opportunity like that and writing it through. I'm going to write that down and carry it with me for the rest of the day. And I think it's because it's what I need. It's so simple because all, I think when you try, and I have been there with this too, even when I was creating fiction and trying to give my characters jobs, trying to create something really neat and looking for that need, it's impossible to spot. But when you think, oh, I wish I had this, I'm going to do this, then other people invariably, because you're enjoying it so much, look at it and think, oh, I wish I had that too. It's the struggle. We all, all of our struggles are the same, even if they're in different arenas. If people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away? In my work in general, in my life, I would say, oh, that's a big one. Basically, it's the more comfortable you are with yourself, the more comfortable you make others with themselves. And I think my mind's there because I think of it so much with my nine-year-old. But when you accept who you are, the others not only take you as you are, but they start to accept themselves. And it's so powerful. If we all lived like that, it would change the world. That's amazing. Carla, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was so fun. Okay, Creative Giants. 
How can you become more comfortable with yourself so that others can breathe and sink into who they are? What can you do today with what you have? Remember, you can always, the the goal is just to do what you can when you can. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.